Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We've been making our way week by week, paragraph by paragraph through 1 Corinthians throughout the, the, the last almost full year. And so we find ourselves in the last chapter today, and uh, between today and next week, uh, just two more weeks in 1 Corinthians, but let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you all the glory because of what you're doing in your church, the body of Christ, for which Jesus shed his blood. Father, thank you for saving us, for wiping away our sin, for giving us your Holy Spirit, and for gathering us together so that we might build one another up with our spiritual gifts and represent you in the world. Father, thank you for all the wonderful things you're doing in the individuals in this room, in our church as a whole, and uh, throughout the city of Mineral Wells and throughout the world. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, throughout our our community today. Uh, Lord, there are so many churches uh, that we... uh, we partner with here here at Indian Creek, so many ministries, Lord, the Mineral Wells Center of Life, Helping Hands, uh, Grace House Ministries, um, uh, many others, Lord, that I'm, I'm not uh, remembering immediately, but Father, I pray that you would uh, just pour out your blessing on each one of these ministries uh, right now, and we ask that you would continue to use them to uh, show mercy and kindness and the love of Christ to our neighbors here in Mineral Wells. Lord, as we turn our attention to this passage uh, that gives us a peek into the normal, everyday, mundane interactions between an apostle and one of the churches he planted, I ask that you would just search our hearts, that you would reveal to us yourself, and those things in ourselves that are not in line with your will so that we might obey you and walk in faithfulness and come to know you better. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
whatever else we might say about the short list of individuals who had a serious chance of becoming the President of the United States in recent years, it would be hard to make the case that any one of them were particularly financially generous. In the most recent election cycle, for example, all of the serious contenders were wealthy people, far wealthier than most of the people in this room. What's more, every single one of them would have claimed to care about justice, about normal folks getting a fair shake at life, about children of poor families having a chance to achieve success, about underprivileged neighborhoods enjoying the safety and protection of the law. So given the rhetoric, you would have thought that each of them would reflect these values in his or her own personal life. But according to research done by journalist Chase Peterson Whithorn in an article published in Forbes magazine in 2019, that was apparently not the case. They all preached a set of values, but they apparently forgot to tell their wallets. For example, Elizabeth Warren and her husband, in spite of earning nearly $10 million over the previous decade, had given less than 4% of that income to charitable causes. I'll leave you to judge whether that reality comports with the values she projected in her political campaign. Uh, Bernie Sanders gave less than 2% of his income. Beto O'Rourke, less than 1%. President Trump's giving records were not available to the writer at the time of the publication, but it's notable that out of 4,844 charitable gifts that Mr. Trump mentioned to journalists, research showed that none were made with his own money. Now, I know I've already had two strikes. Strike one, you're talking about money. Strike two, you just talked about politics. I'm sure I'll hit strike three before the sermon is done. But I'm actually not trying to make any political point at all. I'm not trying to score political points. I'm simply illustrating the fact that the people Americans look up to as leaders are setting a very poor example for us in terms of financial generosity. The fact of the matter is we live in a society in which Generosity, especially financial generosity, is considered exceptional. It's considered beyond the norm. It's considered rare. Giving back is something that people do on an occasional basis, such as when a loved one dies and we give a gift to some cause that was important to them in their name. Or maybe around Christmas time, we put a few bucks in the bucket on the way out of Walmart for the Salvation Army. But is that the way it's supposed to be? Some of you here today might be new to Christianity, or maybe you're not a Christian at all. And what I want to say, actually, the the central message of this text is that for a Christian, generosity is ordinary. For Christians, generosity is ordinary. In fact, it's so ordinary that many believers in Jesus actually barely give it a second thought when they're giving to causes that the Lord uh, leads them to give to, or perhaps giving to or through their church. Uh, they they don't cer- certainly don't brag about it, so you may not realize it, but for a Christian, it's very ordinary, it's very normal to be financially generous. So it's no surprise that, as we'll see from our text today, generosity was also normal in the early church. The question is, 
Is generosity normal or ordinary for you and your family? And if not, why not? If not, how do we cultivate the kind of Christian generosity that Paul illustrates for us in the text before us today? Well, today we're going to see five characteristics of Christian generosity, and I think you'll see they arise right out of the text that we just read. Uh, So consider with me in the first place, principle number one, Christian generosity is a compassionate impulse. Christian generosity is a compassionate impulse. Compassionate. Where's that in this text? Well, consider the context out of which these instructions arise. Uh, The transition between chapter 15 and chapter 16 is sort of abrupt. Last week, if you were here, we were talking about the lofty themes of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and Paul, all throughout most of the book of 1 Corinthians, is talking about these grand gospel uh, truths. And then here in chapter 16, verse 1, he sort of abruptly changes his tone and starts talking in a a much more mundane or or terse way, a business-like fashion, about finances. So, We have to ask, well, what is the situation that Paul is talking about here in the closing to this letter? And to answer that question, we take 1 Corinthians, this letter that we've been studying for the last year, and then we compare that side by side with the book of Acts. And if we do that, we come away with a a pretty clear picture about what was going on in the life of the apostle during this time. Piecing together all the details from both of those documents, it's obvious that Paul is writing this letter during a long stay in the city of Ephesus. So here's Corinth uh, in modern-day Greece, and then across the Aegean Sea, okay, on, uh, from your perspective, across the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor is the city of Ephesus. Paul's staying over here in Ephesus, and he's doing uh, this teaching ministry in the Hall of Tyrannus that lasts several years, and he senses that this ministry is already uh, is soon to draw to a close. In the meantime, the very first local church in existence, the local church in the city of Jerusalem back in Palestine, is dealing with a prolonged famine and the threat of extreme poverty and even starvation. So according to the book of Acts, Paul had already collected relief funds from the churches in the east and sent those funds to the city of Jerusalem. He's done it once, but they're still in need, so he's about to do it again. And he goes to places like Philippi or Berea or Corinth or Thessalonica, and he asks them to show generous and compassionate concern for their needy brothers in Jerusalem. So this is what he's talking about when he says concerning the collection for the saints. Apparently the Corinthians already know what Paul is talking about. It's this organized effort to send relief funds to the to this church in Jerusalem because they're dealing with a famine. By the way, uh, God's people have always had this impulse to support one another. Uh, even going back to the early days of the children of Israel, the language Paul uses in verse 2 is uh, suggestive of the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, the chapter that Renee read earlier in the service. I command you, God says in that verse, through Moses, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. See, generosity for a Christian, it's a compassionate impulse. And what what is it about being a Christian? Have you asked yourself this? What is it about being a Christian that leads Christian men and women to be compassionate and to be financially generous? The, The fact... And it is a fact, you can verify it for yourself, 
that Christians are exceptionally generous is uh, based on the reality that Christian, a Christian just quite simply is somebody who follows Christ. And Christ is the most generous person ever to exist. Uh, in a few months, Paul is going to write another letter to the Corinthian church. We call it 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, he's going to bring this topic back up again, and he's going to spend a little bit more time talking about the theology behind why the Corinthians ought to be generous toward their brothers in the city of Jerusalem. And he tells them, essentially, it's based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he tells them. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. When he said that, he was talking about financial generosity. So in other words, Christ was far wealthier than anyone you could meet on earth, far more used to the glorious riches and and the opulence and the splendor of heaven. And yet when the Father sent him to earth to become a human man, he he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born the son of a human king. He wasn't honored by all around. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young girl named Mary who lived in a little town called Nazareth. He lived as the son of a carpenter. He was born and laid in a feeding trough, raised by simple folk, and finally killed on a cross. For your sake, he became poor so that you might become rich. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you know this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the key. Why is it that Christians are generous people? Why is it that it's ordinary for a Christian to be a generous person, even financially? Because they know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that you would say, well, you know, that's not me, that's not for me, I'm kind of a stingy person. Well, don't you know the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, if you really know what Jesus has done for you, then that's going to impact the way that you treat others. Principle number one, ordinary Christian generosity is a compassionate impulse. Here's principle number two. Christian generosity is a cooperative endeavor. It's a cooperative endeavor. Notice Paul's comments. He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Uh, That is, the Corinthians weren't doing this on their own. This wasn't an individual effort. It was a cooperative effort. In fact, if you trace through the relevant sections of the book of Acts and you compare them with all the times that Paul mentions this very same project in the other letters that he writes to the other churches, you can see just how organized and intentional this effort must have been. It was a major project in which Paul brought together the efforts of churches from all over the the Mediterranean basin, and, and, and he had to kind of plan all this and make sure it was organized. And and that would have been hard enough today with all of our technology, but it was even more difficult back then. It was a huge project. Obviously, it was important to the Apostle Paul that the churches engage in generous giving together, that they do this as a cooperative effort. Uh, That's what we try to model here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. It just so happens uh, in God's providence that we're dealing with a passage like this on the very day that we're supposed to talk about our 2024 budget. I didn't plan it that way, I promise. That's just the way it happened. 
And uh, people hear that word, budget, and we think, budget, that's gross. I don't want to talk about that. Like we recognize in our more mature moments that budgets are probably a good thing, kind of like broccoli or spinach. They're good for you, but we don't really like them. But think about how a budget, as a, as a church family, as a ministry, helps us reflect this particular quality of Christian generosity. Oftentimes our generosity is sort of like picking our favorites from the menu, right? We say, okay, I like men's ministry. That's had an impact on my life, so I'm going to write a check and designate that to the men's ministry. Or I like, uh, you know, uh, international missions, so I'm going to... Uh, direct my gift toward international missions, and we, we kind of pick and choose the things that are important to us. Some of you might think that's a good way to give financially instead of just putting money in the plate. You're giving to ministry that is important to you personally as an individual. But if you do that, let me challenge you to think differently. Why is it that the early church tended to cooperate together while we might tend to sort of pick and choose the things that we like on the basis of our individual tastes and priorities. Is it possible that we're missing something today? Is it possible that our brothers and sisters in the early church understood something that we tend to overlook? Like the meaningful oneness of the body of Christ. Like the nature of a church as a family in in, in which each member is a brother or a sister in a common endeavor. Or isn't that, isn't that worth fighting for? The oneness of the body of Christ? Isn't that a gospel reality that we are a family, that Christ has brought us together, that he's taking people who used to be at odds with each other, that used to be enemies, and he's bringing us together into one family so that we're prepared for that one day when we're all going to be gathered before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ? So shouldn't our generosity reflect this gospel reality? And that, of course, is one of the main reasons we have a budget as a church. We're trying to reflect this important Christ-like value. Every year, all of our Indian Creek ministry teams get together, and they think, and they ponder, and they talk, and they pray about what it is that the Lord is going to have for our church in the next year. And then they take those plans, and they start attaching financial figures to those plans, and then they bring that to the finance team, and then the finance team brings it to the elders, and then the elders bring it to the church. That's the process. But in order to do that, we have to work together. We have to cooperate. Same goes for ministries outside of Indian Creek Baptist Church that we support. Part of our budget goes to a ministry called Helping Hands. Uh, Helping Hands provides groceries for hundreds of families and individuals who would go hungry without a little help. Uh, We support another ministry called Grace House Ministries here in Mineral Wells. In addition to a clinic, Grace House uh, provides parenting classes for young parents and diapers and car seats and baby clothes for our most vulnerable neighbors, moms and babies, uh, both in the womb and out of the womb. Uh, We work together to support the Mineral Wells Center of Life, uh, a ministry that compassionately cares for the homeless and the needy in a variety of ways. These ministries, I'm just kind of using them as illustration, but they wouldn't exist if we didn't do the hard work together as a church and with other churches in our community to overlook some of the differences that are secondary that we have with one another and work together for the sake of the kingdom. And this reflects the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this what he prayed for in John 17? He prayed, Jesus prayed and asked the Father that we would be one 
That means that it is the will of the person who saved us by sacrificing his own body on the cross that we would be one. That's his goal. And so our giving ought to reflect that reality. Giving uh, Christian generosity is a cooperative endeavor. So number one, uh, it's a compassionate impulse. Number two, it is a cooperative endeavor. Principle number three, Christian generosity is a continual habit. It is a continual habit. There's a lot of meaning wrapped up in this one prepositional phrase in verse two, on the first day of the week. Uh, Notice he says you're supposed to lay something up on the first day of the week. So think about what that means. Uh, Apart from the fact that here is evidence, one of the places that that we see evidence that Christians, even in the early church, even in the middle of the first century, were gathering on the first day of the week. Think about how many times you have a first day of the week. How How often does the first day of the week happen? Every week. 52 times a year. Every single week, he's telling the believers, every week, you go and you look at how the Lord's prospered you, and you form a habit of generosity. You do this all year round. Christian generosity isn't just for every once in a blue moon. It ought to be a habit. So we're going to get really practical here, okay? Think about practically what this means. How do you do it if you never have before? How do we start this habit? Let me just give you a few thoughts about this. Uh, it starts with a conviction. I must do this. And I, I think you'll see that, that that's what Paul is asking each of the Corinthians and each of us to, to do, to start with that conviction. I have to do this. So, for example, if you're earning an average wage and you haven't been tithing, you will feel it if you begin that habit. You are going to feel different. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you are really going to feel it. If you're used to carrying credit card debt for stuff you can actually do without, you are really going to feel it. So in order to have this continual habit, you're going to have to start with a conviction, I need to do this. The Holy Spirit is leading me to make this decision. And so even though it's going to be hard, even though there are going to be bumps along the way, even though there's going to be difficulty along the way, I'm not going to give up on this goal. I'm going to do what God calls me to do. I'm going to begin with a conviction. It starts with a conviction. And then that number two, that conviction leads to a couple of conversations. Conversation number one is with the Lord. You're going to need his help because it's not necessarily always going to be easy. Conversation number two, if you're married, is with your spouse. Uh, A basic principle of marriage is that you're one flesh with your spouse. That means a lot of different things. But here's one thing it means. When you make a financial decision, that decision impacts the person that you're married to. It's a one flesh decision. So have that conversation with your spouse. It doesn't matter whether you have a separate bank account or not. It doesn't matter whether this car is in his name and that car is in her name. You might have really good reasons for all of that. I'm not sure. But the point is, regardless, you're one flesh. So you need to have a conversation with your spouse. And Uh, If you need help talking to your spouse about this sort of thing, there are plenty of godly people in this room that can help you do that. But let me just encourage you, you know how to do it. You know what to do. Pick a time when they aren't too tired. 
Don't try to manipulate them. Don't act like you're more spiritual than they are. Listen for what they're saying instead of trying to just listen in order to make the point and win the argument. You know what to do, but have the conversation. Talk with your spouse about what God is doing in your life. And once you've had that conviction and you've had some conversations, then it's time to start making some cuts. Nobody said amen to that. There's very, there are very few amens this morning. What are you going to cut? Now, maybe that'll be obvious to you. Maybe you're making payments on something that you don't need. For most people, it's not going to be so obvious. You know, the thing that we tend to go after is your, your trips to the coffee shop, right? People are spending all this money on coffee. I don't know who these people are that spend that kind of money on coffee, but if you're spending that much on coffee, you probably should cut that out anyway. But the truth is, it's not going to be so obvious, so you're going to have to do some thinking and praying about that, some talking with your spouse. So here's, let me just encourage you to do one very, very simple thing as you're talking through this. Find somebody, look around this room, find somebody in this church who's over the age of 60, who's walking with the Lord. Now, I'm just picking a random number, okay? 55, 60, whatever. An older person, someone who's older than you, who's further along, and ask them, about their walk with the Lord when they were younger and how that impacted their financial life. Just ask them about it. Nine times out of ten, if they're willing to talk about it, they'll tell you that there were seasons where they worked two jobs. Yes, that happened. There were seasons when they added a little extra water to the soup, where they literally didn't know where the next meal was going to come from, where there, there, there were seasons when they lost a job and they didn't have severance pay. And not only did they do what they needed to do, not only did God take care of them and they're still alive, but they kept up with their commitments of generosity and God was faithful. I promise you, I am not trying to manipulate you or pressure you in any way, and I don't mean to be unkind. But folks, the things that we've said we need, many of those things we don't really need. We don't need organic produce in order to live. We don't. We don't need a car with less than 50,000 miles in order to survive. We can survive with an older car. We don't need high-speed internet or a smartphone. Even those things, we don't really need them. People live without those things for thousands of years. In fact, you would probably be 10 times happier if you got rid of them today. We don't need so many of the things that we need, so have some conviction. What I'm saying is don't give up. Don't just make a bunch of excuses. Don't throw in the towel. Make that commitment. Have some conviction. Have a conversation with the Lord and with your spouse and make some cuts because Christian generosity is worth it and it needs to be a continual habit. Number one, it's a compassionate impulse. Number two, it's a cooperative endeavor. Number three, it's a continual habit. Number four, Christian generosity is common to every Christian. Christian generosity is common to every Christian. Who is Paul talking to here in this passage? Each of you, he says. Did you see that phrase? Each of you is to put something aside. In Greek, there's something called a third-person imperative, and that's what this verb is. All that means is it's not an option. It's a command. It's not for some people but not others. It's for all believers. 
Remember that Corinth is a church in which there are both rich people and poor people. But Paul doesn't say rich people set aside something on the first day of the week. He says each of you set aside something on the first day of the week. Nowadays, Christians give an average of 2.5% of their income to charity, according to the Internet, okay? Uh, 2.5%, that's any charity, including their local church and any other charitable causes. Now, that average is a lot better than those who don't claim to be Christians. I'm sorry, that's just a fact. Uh, But it's 2.5%. It's not really that great. Under the Old Covenant... The Israelites were expected to tithe and then some. Tithe means 10%. Jesus affirms this practice. Most Christians down through the centuries have agreed with this practice. They've enjoined one another to give at least 10% of their gross personal income to their local church. But we're at 2.5%. Do you know why that is? Why is it that we're at 2.5% on average? I can promise you this. It is not because Christians... uh, have become so much more enlightened nowadays than they were in the past. It's not because we're so much more godly than we were, than Christians were in the past. Nobody who was tithing to their church has ever fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and started to weep and cry and come to the front of the service and, and, and fell on their knees and said, God, I'm so sorry I gave that much of my income to the church. No, that's never happened. No, the reason, one of the reasons why, there are probably a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons why we're at that 2.5% is because we compare ourselves with everybody else. This is the way our mind works. Well, there are people in this church, I see them. I see what they drive up in the parking lot driving. I, I see what they wear. God's really blessed them. They need to step up and give to their local church. Don't start pointing fingers when it comes to giving. Or we say, well, Uh, You know, when I look at the people I graduated high school with and I see the kind of house they live in, I see the kind of car they drive, and I see the kind of clothes they wear, the kind of vacations that they go on, they're doing a lot better than I am. So uh, just comparing myself with them, I'm in kind of a tight place right now. So if I were in a different place financially, maybe I would start to do this. No, don't compare. Because here's what you're saying. You're saying that this each of you that Paul puts in this passage has a little asterisk on it, and on the bottom of the page, you need to write, except me. (laughs) Uh, Each of you, unless you drive an older car, or each of you, unless you have four people in your house with only one income, or unless you're a single parent, or unless you're a teenager, or unless you're living on a fixed income. I'm not trying to be unkind, but this is the kind of thing we do. Each of you means each of you. Did you know that during the Great Depression, Christians were giving more than 30% more than they're giving today? They had a lot less, but they were more generous. They didn't have iPhones. Believe it or not, I've verified that. (laughs) Typically, they didn't have a second car with a sunroof and leather seats. They didn't have air conditioning or high-speed internet. They survive without all of those things that we treat like necessities, but somehow they were more generous than we tend to be. Folks, it's as simple as making the personal commitment to say, wait a second, this command is directed toward me. Not my rich uncle, not the guy in the next pew, not somebody else, me. By the way, that means if you're a teenager and you're earning a little bit of money mowing lawns or you've got a part-time job, now is the best time to start giving and being generous. Uh, 
because it's not going to get easier when you get older. And I know you hear that kind of thing all the time, but it's true, okay? Christian generosity is common to every Christian. Here's principle number five. Christian generosity corresponds to one's prosperity. Christian generosity corresponds to one's prosperity. Each of you, Paul says, is to lay something aside as he may prosper. This phrase very obviously comes from the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy. And the idea in that text is that our faithfulness and God's blessing go hand in hand. In other words, we follow Christ in generosity. We imitate his example. And he very often will give us greater responsibility and greater stewardship. On the other hand, when he gives us that greater stewardship, it stands to reason that we would then respond to that blessing by increasing in generosity. Generosity and God's blessing go hand in hand. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, wait a second, that sounds like legalism. Like, if God sees us doing the right thing and following all the rules, then he's going to give us more blessings and, and not before. Others are, are sitting there and you're thinking, wait a second, that sounds like the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Like if I write a check for $100, put it in the plate uh, later on in the month, I'm going to get a check for $1,000 or something like that. Listen, Paul isn't saying that we can somehow manipulate God. He's not saying that we do things to place God in our debt and we get him to give us more money. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our obedience. He isn't impressed by our obedience. No, it's nothing like that. A lot of times in reacting against the false teachings that we see in the world, we go way too far because we're not anchored to the Bible and we need to make sure that we're anchored to the Bible. So what is this text saying? It's much more like uh, a family. And the church is a family, isn't it? And we're part of God's family, aren't we? Isn't he our father? And doesn't he discipline his children? Doesn't he train us? This is what he does. Imagine a family, dad and mom, on their best days, they're constantly invested in the growth and the maturity of their children, right? Isn't this what we want to do as parents? And so what do we do? We give little Johnny a little bit of freedom, or a little bit of responsibility, or we give Susie a little freedom or responsibility, and if Johnny or Susie can't handle it, then mom and dad circle back and they say, okay, we tried to give you a little bit of freedom, but you obviously can't handle that yet, so we're going to pull it back until you grow up a little bit. Isn't this what we do in our best moments? Sometimes we're a little more scatterbrained than this. But we give them a little responsibility and freedom. And then if they do well, if they thrive, then we give them a little bit more. Okay, you've done well with the freedom that we've given you. We've, you've done well with the responsibility that we've given you. So we're going to give you more freedom. We're going to give you more responsibility because our goal for you is that you would grow. Now, it's an analogy. It's an illustration. But this is a little bit what it's like to live as a part of God's family. Doesn't God want us to grow spiritually? Doesn't, want, doesn't he want us to grow in our faith? And so oftentimes, God gives us the privilege of financial prosperity. And by the way, everybody here has it because we live in the United States of America. And that prosperity is a blessing, but it's also a test. It shows our priorities. It shows what we love. And if we take the wealth that God has given us and we show that we love Christ and we're willing to use that stewardship, uh, to advance the kingdom of God, very often what God does is, is he says, you're growing. I'm going to give you more responsibility. 
I'm going to give you more things to steward. He doesn't always do it that way, but often he does. Some of you are quite wealthy, but in the way that you use your wealth, you show that you value the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think we can safely say that the prosperity God is giving you and the faithfulness that you're showing in using that prosperity, they go hand in hand. I have no problem saying that. Others of you, times are tight. And, and, and there's all kinds of reasons why that may be. And trust me, I understand what that is like. There are six people under my roof, okay? And there have been moments where we've been very, very stressed about finances. So I get it. But in any case, God is caring for you. God is taking care of you, and he's giving you what you need, and he's, he's invested in growing you. So he may give you the test of prosperity so that you can grow. He may give you the test of financial uh, tightness because he wants you to grow. But God's a wise father. He's always going to give us what we need. You see, our faithfulness with our money, our Christian generosity, and God's blessing, uh, they go hand in glove. It, it corresponds to our prosperity. So if God is blessing you right now, consider what that might be, uh, what he might be encouraging you to do with that blessing. So here it is. Generosity is ordinary for a Christian. It's a compassionate impulse that arises out of a relationship with the most generous person ever to live. It's a cooperative endeavor. It shows that there's one Savior, one Spirit, one God and Father of all who desires from the depths of his heart that we may be one. It's a continual habit. It's something that Christians engage in not once in a while, but on a regular basis. It's common to every Christian. It's not just for the rich. It's for everybody, and it corresponds with the prosperity God grants to every person. You know, I did a little back-of-the-napkin math yesterday as I was getting ready for this sermon. I said, okay, let's talk about our church. We've got about 150 families, if you count active members and their families. Round up to 150, and if we're, uh, I don't know what everybody makes, what everybody earns, but the, uh, according, again, to the Internet, uh, according to the internet, the median household income in the United States in 2023 is about $68,000 a year. Now, what that means is half of the people make more than that, and half of the people make less than that. It's the median income, okay? So just thinking simplistically, a little bit of simplistic, overly simplistic math, let's say you had 150 families in a church earning $68,000 a year, and all of them tithe. That means they all gave 10% of their income to their local church. Do you know how much that would be? Some of you are like doing the math in your head. I'm not going to give you an exact number, but let, let me tell you this. If we do that little simple math, that figure that we get is, is less than what you have given over the last year. I'm talking total giving. So what that means is that Indian Creek Baptist Church is a place where Christian generosity is ordinary. You say, that's gross. You're bragging. Listen, no, I'm not, because I, I didn't have anything to do with it, and I'm not here to just pat people on the back because that's just a, that's just a simpli simplistic way to think about it. Here's, my, here's the point I'm making. Some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, you know what? What he's talking about is so radical. That's not real. That's not realistic. Listen, it's realistic. This is what Christians do. 
This is ordinary. And by the way, if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to put that to the test. Spend time around Christians in the world. Not Christian celebrities, not Christians you see on social media, not just somebody that has a Jesus fish on his car or a verse on his social media profile. Real Christians in real life at a real church who really are trying to follow Christ. Spend time with people like that and you'll see, I promise you, that the Holy Spirit is changing them and making them generous people so generous that they don't even really think twice about it. Because Christian generosity is ordinary for believers. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for this church and for uh, this text, which just really simply, uh, straightforwardly lays out for us what was normal, ordinary, mundane, and everyday in the early church. And I want to thank you for the way that you're bringing that that culture about here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. Lord, I know that there are people, uh, that there are people of all uh, situations here in this room and uh, different levels of spiritual maturity. And, and so for some people, you are confirming, hey, you're doing the right thing. You're doing what I've called you to do. And then for other people, Lord, you're, you're convicting them and, and encouraging them to rethink the way that they approach finances and approach the topic of generosity. And so, Father, I pray that regardless of the individual situation, that you would prevent the wiles of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, from taking and gaining a foothold in the lives of believers. And that you would give us the gift of knowing that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Father, there are some in this room who are scared because they are already struggling financially. And so, Father, I pray that you would give them boldness to trust you. There are some who are uh, under a specific conviction, Lord, and and you know what those are. I just ask that you would cause us to respond in a way that is obedient to you and to your spirit this morning. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.